the veterinary profession going forward needs to focus more on EQ and less on IQ, more on teamwork, less on I work, and more on leveraging your team to do everything that they possibly can while you as the doctor focus on those things that you do best and can generate the greatest income for the practice. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. This episode is sponsored by Thrive Affordable Vet Care. Looking for a thriving career? Make the change and find your why at Thrive. Now hiring clinical staff. Visit thrivevet.com careers today. We are so excited to have an amazing guest with us today, the man, the legend, Dr. Peter Weinstein, um, DVM, Master's in Business Administration, who is the current director, uh, executive director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. Andrea and I have known Dr. Weinstein for many, many years. He is He has given blood, sweat, and tears to the industry. And so, Dr. Weinstein, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Dr. Weinstein. Well... David and Andrea, I couldn't have written a better introduction myself, but you are way too kind. We are all part of the same veterinary family, and we all work together. So I am honored to be a part of of this podcast, and I very much appreciate the invitation to join you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So we have a tradition on the Positive Leadership Podcast that we don't read any bios. We love our guests to uh, tell our listeners about themselves. So Without further ado, um, would you, without reading your your formal bio, would you tell uh, our listeners about yourself? Yes. It's easy for me to go back and talk myself through the being a veterinarian part of it, but I really want to focus on the fact that I'm a a father, a husband, a leader. I I like to think of myself as a disruptor, um, a philanthropist. Uh, I am a veterinarian, uh, and, and I think that I've done a variety of different things over it would is now, by the way, 35 years since I graduated from veterinary school, uh, to, to do the best that I can in each of those areas. So rather than talk about veterinary school and undergraduate and, and this, that, and the other thing, I really just want to focus on the fact that the things that are most important to me is being a father and a husband. Everything else is secondary. Thanks, Dr. Weinstein. So we also have a tradition on the podcast to ask our speakers and guests about a favorite either book or podcast or continuing education, you know, meeting or seminar or a class that you took that had a lasting effect on you. You know, we, Andrea and I on the podcast really believe in lifelong learning and feel that sometimes we come across uh, some great gems and we love to share those with our listeners. So do you have a, a fav- something, a, a book or a podcast or CE, something that left a, a really long lasting impression that you could share? with our uh, listeners and maybe they'll go listen to it also. So if this were a video podcast or a a video log, you'd see that I was turning around and looking at my bookshelves to pick a a choice. But honestly, the the book that I feel has had the most long-term significant um, impact on me as a person was The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. I read the initial book book, I think probably 15, 16 years ago when it came out. I listened to the e- the audio book. I participated in a number of workshops with Jack Canfield. And if you don't know who Jack Canfield is, he and, and Mark Victor Hansen were the, 
the brainchild children behind Chicken Soup for the Soul, and have had a chance to meet with uh, Jack Canfield a number of different times. But that book, his programs, podcasts, etc., have had the greatest long impact on me as a person. Fantastic. I can just imagine and envision what your library looks like and, and having to pick just one. I'm going to say that's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, then give credit to Jack Canfield because uh, definitely that's the first book that I recommend to any veterinary student, any veterinary graduate, and any person who really wants to start to do a better job of taking care of themselves. Do you also see on that library a book, The E-Myth Veterinarian? You co-authored that book, The E-Myth Veterinarian. Tell me what inspired you to write that book. You know, when I was in, let's go back to when I was in practice. Like many veterinarians, I worked as an associate for a couple of years and then had my classic entrepreneurial seizure where I decided (laughs) that I (laughs) I was making somebody else successful and decided that uh, I thought I could run a practice on my own. So I was driving around with my, actually with my boss at that point in time, around Laguna Hills, California, and saw a shopping center with an empty suite and 550,000, excuse me, new homes being built in Laguna Hills. Decided to build a practice there, opened the practice, and then a couple of years into it, realized I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, Clinically, I was pretty good. Business-wise, I was winging it, and uh, so I started to attend veterinary practice management programs, and at one of the programs, I one of the speakers said, you know, one of the books that should be in your library is The, e- is the E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber and also The E-Myth Revisited. And so I bought The E-Myth, the original E-Myth, which is from the mid-80s, I believe, and I read it. And I highlighted it, and I dog-eared, and then I became a Michael Gerber stalker. And every time that he was was speaking or in a venue that I could attend, I would sit in the back of the room and take notes and absorb. And I uh, applied the learnings from the E-Myth as much as I could in my own practice. And when the opportunity arose to co-author with Michael, the E-Myth Veterinarian, it was a no-brainer. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about the story later because there's a, a question that I believe you will ask later that, that can tie into it. But I, uh, uh, it was a no-brainer. It was a no-brainer because I truly believe that systems and processes are the one of the, the shortfalls that practices have from a, a, a missing standpoint, from an application yeah, 100% standpoint. 100% agree. And the... Emith Veterinarian, although doesn't dive deep into it, it it's, it's gives a taste of what is necessary for practices to be successful. So it was a no-brainer. The inspiration was make a difference in the profession. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, those those chances do come up every once in a while, and, and that's incredible. I've you know gotten to work with some uh, people who I now call, you know, friends and, and have been mentors in the past and have, you know, looked at them from afar and heard them lecture or whatnot and then gotten a chance to do something with them. And that's really exciting. Um, Andrea and I both uh, really respect Brene Brown and we keep putting it out into the universe that we'll have yes. Brene Brown on the podcast at some point. And right. So you just keep, you know, you keep that, uh, that positive keep energy. <laughs> so being the executive director of the SCVMA, which is uh, the Veterinary Medical Association of, the, of Southern California, which is huge, you know, you have this really unique um, and probably uh, somewhat coveted ability to look at the profession from an, a you know, 30,000 foot view. You, you work with hundreds, if not thousands of veterinarians. You speak nationally and internationally. Um, I'm sure you get to do some kind of either formal or informal you know, research and, and, and read all of the literature and things that come out of different things. And you've also been a veterinarian and uh, uh, in the profession a long time. So you know, I'd love to hear about what your experience was during COVID. And how you, you know, what, what you heard from veterinarians, what, you know, we know a lot of what the kind of extreme challenges were in crises that we, that we all dealt with basically almost a year, you know, more than a little more than a year ago now. And where did the profession come to? I mean, we're, we're in what's, I think, a very interesting spot. You hear a lot now about 
you know, the crisis that we're in. So we got through a crisis, right? I mean, uh, you know, we could, we're still in a pandemic, but we got through it. But there's there's now, I think we took the light, we we pulled up the carpet and are looking under these these dark spots and are talking about burnout, compassion fatigue, turnover. And, uh, you know, uh, there's some studies that have come out recently that have talked about, you know, people are leaving the profession in droves. And so, you know, look, looking at it from a 30,000 foot view and then drilling down, you know, kind of to what clinics can do. How do you think the veterinary profession is kind of handling the demand that we saw with COVID and how is it going to impact the profession? Where are we going to go from here? We only have an hour, right? Just yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right? <I hear> you. <laughs> Big question there. All right. So how do I think the profession is handling the demand? Uh, poorly. Okay. There's the one word answer. I think we weren't, we were ill-prepared. We are very well prepared when things are slow, but we were ill-prepared when things got busy. And so as the executive director of the association, I got to hear about, oh my God, February, March, April, early May, it's the end of the world as we know it. And then May, June, July, August, September, all of a sudden it's the end of the world as we know it. One, because the economy fell off the the uh, curve in the spring and then all of a sudden bounced back like a Super Bowl in the summer. And we weren't prepared for the fall off. Yeah. And we and we weren't prepared for the rebound. Yeah. And we actually haven't handled the rebound any better than we handled the fallout. And what I mean from that and I'll I'll just talk about as a veterinarian. I mean, frequently, we were just happy to pay the bills for the day. You know, we all know what our nut to crack is every day when we walk in the hospital, how much we have to, to make. And so anytime we were past that, that was profit. Well, now all of a sudden, there's more money coming through the door than we ever knew what to do with. But we were delivering it in a very inefficient fashion through curbside. And we were putting an inordinate amount of stress on ourselves as owners, an inordinate amount of stress on our team as part of the team. And I think we were metaphorically putting our foot on the engine and putting our foot on the gas pedal and running the car in the red. And I think we've been doing that for about a year now. Yes, and and I think that many engines were never no no gasoline was added, and no oil was added to the veterinary engine in the last year. And there's a lot of cars whose engines are burning out. And yeah, un, unlike the ability to bring that car into the shop and have a lube job and a tune up, I think a lot of these cars are going to be so burned out whenever we return to some semblance of normalcy, they're going to end up in a junkyard. Now, that, that's a lousy metaphor to say that there's a lot of veterinarians and a lot of staff who have tried to run a marathon over the past 12 months by running a sprint every day. And you can't yeah. do that. We didn't look at this as a, as, as a, a long-term situation. So we were taking advantage of every day that came in and then every day became the next day. And the next day was, was as busy as the day before. And we were afraid to turn the water off because we thought we were going to have a drought. And now we can't turn the water off. We haven't figured out what to do with it. And on top of that, God, you got me on a soapbox, lady and gentlemen. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Keep going. Keep going. You know, no, sing, it. sing it. <laughs> you know, we were freaking inefficient before COVID. And now COVID and, and curbside has only increased the inefficiency. So as all of the, the veterinary world, and I, and I just came back from Orlando, all of the veterinary world, not just in Southern California, but in the rest of the country, is running the engine on red. They're running on the engine on red from a perception standpoint. But the reality is, as much as revenue has grown somewhere between 8, 10, 12% or more, depending on the practice, transactions have not. So we have been busy being busy, which isn't good for business. And so I have significant concerns about the long-term mental health of owners, 
managers, client service people, veterinary assistants, assistants, animal caretakers, and the ability to bounce back from this running the car in the red over the past 12 months. I'll take a breath. Great. A perfect opportunity because I'm chomping at the bit to dive into some of this. So tell me what you think some of the things that we need to be doing to put gas in the engine. I assume our car engine, right, is our team burning a candle at both ends and revving it on extremely high RPMs, if you will. So tell me what some of the things are that we need to do. How can we turn off the water? Well, I I think you want to turn the water down a little bit, but I think one of the oils that our team can live on is empathy. One of our oils the team can live on is compassion for them. One of the oils that our team can live on is time. And one of the things that we really do need to do every once in a while is turn the car off, park it in the garage, and let it rest for a couple of days. Yeah, right. And, you know, it may mean sacrificing some client visits, but this again is a marathon and replacing clients right now, I'm sorry to say, is a heck of a lot easier than replacing staff. But we are so busy trying to make every freaking client happy, which you'll never do, at the expense of all the clients who have a four-letter word dictionary that are reading it through Yelp and through the car window or across the front desk, that we are burning out our staff who are our engine. So the clients are the scenery, and we're running the engine too hot to even see the scenery. And I don't think we take care of our staff enough. And and in some ways, we just need to take the car off the street and park it. Yes. Hey, you know what? 100% agree. Detail it. That's what I'm talking about. Give it a massage. Give it a bath. Buy it a drink. Just do something so that the car feels loved again and not abused. Look under the hood and find the crumbs and, you know, vacuum it and fluff it up. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think we could talk also for an hour about, you you, you know, you mentioned we're trying to make clients happy and, and some of these reasons why we fail at efficiency and we fail at, you know, being able to basically scale, right? Like go from pre-pandemic, pandemic was crazy, but we had a year, year plus now to start working on how to scale with the demand. And we, and we, many of us are still spinning wheels on how to do that. And I think the, you know, there's a lot of why, you know, there's certainly, I think you mentioned some empathy and caring and some of these things that are really almost not, not, not necessarily antitheses to business, but there's a different piece there about operation and efficiency and throughput and things where you can, you can meet both. You can have a great client experience and run you know, 50 clients through your hospital a day or whatever. But I want to talk about the, the, the what for a second, or I guess I should say, you know, the, the how. And so, I, you know, we're going to talk a little more later about some staffing stuff and also kind of where we see the profession, you know, five or 10 years from now. But, you know, right now, Dr. Weinstein, you know, and again, this is probably an hour discussion, but what are the things that clinics are not doing right now that have created this situation where they weren't able to scale? They weren't, and, and let, you know, let's talk about some of the specifics, right? So making every client happy. Well, that's not possible, right? We got to figure out how to work around that. I don't think any company, including multi-billion dollar like you know lululemon coke coca-cola any of those expect to make every client happy like they have a, they want to have a certain percent they want to have the majority of them happy so they understand that there's some that won't so how does trying to make every client happy really hurt us and hurt the profession and then you know you mentioned efficiency and the ability to to move things through i think another thing that we do is we we want to take hours and hours with every patient and we want to not utilize, you know, technology and templates and, and things like that to really move things through faster. So why, why is that? Why do we not want to embrace that? Why do we feel we need to make everybody happy? Why do we spend an hour on the phone with the upset client when five of them could have spent triple the amount and we haven't spent any time with them? Where What is that about this profession that hasn't moved it into the age of, you know, I've got the questions in there, but the other thing I want to say before I turn it over to you is I remember when I was managing a 24-hour hybrid practice, a GP and an ER, and our system allowed us to uh, text using templates. You could click 
you know, semicolon S, and it would say, Dear Mrs. Smith, thank you so much for coming in. Your patient's, you know, Fluffy's blood work is normal. Great work. See you next year. And I tell you, and you'll probably agree with me on this, Dr. Weinstein, every single person that pushed back was not the 25 or 30-year-old millennial. It were the veterinarians. It was the veterinarians that said, no, they need me to call them. They're going to want me to call them. And I said, no, they don't want you to call them. You're, you're, and I didn't say the sim, but I said, you're overestimating how much the client who comes in once a year needs you. And guess what? I said, let me try it for a month. And if people text back and say, don't you ever text me, I can't believe I didn't talk to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera, I will, you know, I will pull it off. Guess how many people texted back and said, I can't believe you texted me. I didn't get a call from the doctor. Zero. Zero. We had 100% acceptance rate. Most people, 90% of them said, thank you so much. You know, good to know. See you next year. And 10% never responded and we saw them next year. So getting back to what I was talking about initially, I'm sure you, uh, you know, you, you kind of have some ideas on this. I'd love to turn it over to you. What do you think? Why, why are we so hindered? Why are we not able to come into the 21st century? Because we haven't gotten to the 20th century yet. (laughs) (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) I just just had lunch with Steve Ettinger. And Steve's 80. And we were talking about veterinary medicine in the 70s. And then we were talking about veterinary medicine in the 1870s. And then we talked about veterinary medicine with Noah, who I like to think was the first veterinarian. And was anything different? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> not I, I, I was yeah. I, I was a kennel kid for veterinary practice on Long Island, New York in the 70s. And the delivery model in 2021 is not much different than it was almost 50 years ago. It's a it, it in many hospitals, corporate or private, is still a very doctor-centric business model, which is the doctor knows everything, says everything, believes everything, and doesn't care what anybody else has to say way too often. The success, to, to truly be successful in business, you can't build a business that's dependent upon you as a person. Yeah, one single person. Right. You have to be building a business that's dependent upon a team-based healthcare delivery. Doctors, dentists do it all the time. And we have to stop looking at veterinary medicine strictly as a healthcare provider, but truly as a service-based industry, because the, the discretionary dollar that a client has is the dollar that they will spend on a pet or an airplane, on a cat or a dress, on a pair of shoes or a bird. Mm-hmm. And the right. last fifteen yeah, right. months have proven that when there's cash in the bank, they'll pay, they'll spend it on pets. But what's going to happen when there's no longer cash right. in the bank? Right. So we have a doctor-centric business that needs to be team-centric, and and that means we need to learn how to communicate. Huge, 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 huge shortfall in the veterinary profession is the ability to communicate at all levels. The clients, Mm -hmm. the staff, to other doctors, heck, from organized veterinary medicine to our members. So communication has never been a strong point. And I argue with deans and, and other members of admissions committees of veterinary schools that really the veterinary profession going forward needs to focus more on EQ and less on IQ, more on teamwork, less on I work, and more on leveraging your team to do everything that they possibly can while you as the doctor focus on those things that you do best and can generate the greatest income for the practice. And that doesn't mean going to Costco and it doesn't mean putting in catheters. So I I, I probably just gave you about three hours worth of lecture in about four minutes. But all of those things by not being in place have exacerbated the inefficiencies that we already had from being a doctor-centric practice where the doctor cleaned the table, brought mm-hmm. the client in the room, and instead of seeing what the dentists have done, what the pediatricians have done, which is let the nurses do the majority of the work, and the doctor is just the one who goes in and puts the rubber stamp on the work mm-hmm. that the nurse did and says, hey, great job, Crystal. Great job, Stephanie. Right. Um, Mrs. Jones, they'll take great care of you. Your pet looks great. Your kid looks great. Your teeth look great. And instead of spending 30 minutes trying to 
communicate with clients, we can spend 10 minutes, which opens much, much, much more time right. in the global scheme of things. So I can go on and on and on. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm going to jump in. I, I saw this in emergency medicine, and I don't know exactly why I'm wired this way, but I am probably because I'm a millennial, but I'm wired for efficiency. And every time something is inefficient and can be done in a different way, uh, it drives me nuts. And I think that there's, uh, you know, I, I loved how you said you're a disruptor. I'm not really, but I, I think that I have some of that ability to say, you know, challenging the, well, why is it done this way? Can we do it different? So I'll give you this scenario. In human medicine, and I've been to the ER and I've been to urgent care, everybody has, uh, you go in and I, literally, I don't care if you are clutching your chest and are literally having a myocardial infarction, you don't get rushed to the back. You sit in a way, I'm not saying our pets should suffer, but this is the reality. You sit in a chair, they give you a chart. If you are very critical, they put you into a room with a nurse. And the RN, or, or it could be an LVN, but usually RN will do all of the vitals, including you know your CRT and your blood pressure. And um, I've had my blood pressure be low from dehydration, and she sent me white, right back out into the waiting room. You know, you're not going to die. You're not in shock. You're a little dehydrated. You know, I'm not saying they're heartless, but they see thousands of people a day. That is all they can do, right? So you get triaged. They figure out where you are. You go back out front. Then you get pulled into a room. Often an RN comes in, starts an IV, and draws blood. And about 20 minutes later, you see the doctor. So what has happened is the RN has done everything up until basically probably telling the doctor this is what the person has. You know, like they've got the blood drawn, they got the IV fluids going. And what I thought was really interesting about that is, you know, I peeked around, of course, the corner and looked. The RNs decide the flag, what level of triage you are, when you should be seen. And the doctors just wander around all day and say, where should I go next? Where do I go next? Now, let's look at the veterinary emergency room. Now, I will preface this by saying I've not worked as an ER tech for many, many years. But when I was an ER tech, this was maybe 10 years ago, I remember that because of one incident where a cat was in a carrier and was very sick and the receptionist didn't catch it, every single thing that walks through the door got ran into the back and we sat there while a veterinarian ran around trying to triage it all, assess it, throw it in a cage. So you have an owner who comes in with literally a dog with a controlled laceration, no bleeding, not too, not too crazy. The dog gets ripped from the owner's arms, rushed into the back. The doctor says, looks good, pink, no murmur, throw it in a cage. Three hours later, I go in with an estimate for the laceration. The owner is upset they're peeved, they don't know why it's a thousand dollars, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than having a technician capable enough, and this can be an RVT or, or not, look at the gums, feel the pulses, check the patient and say, yeah, he's stable and start to work on that. And the veterinarian saying, okay, Sarah, where do I go next? That was, and, and it may be different now, but that was not the situation when I was a technician on the floor. We were, as you said, Dr. Wensing, you know, very, very doctor driven. And I always wondered why it was such a vast difference. And then I realized, and I looked at my ER, and I saw every uh, cage tie with a dog attached to it, dogs that were chewing on the cages because they were more than stable, right? These dogs, were they did not want to be there or cats. And I always looked at it and said, man, this is inefficient. And, you know, staffing and kind of the stratification of staff and the, and the levels is kind of our next uh, section. So I want to kind of, as you said, I want to get off my soapbox and kind of give it over to you and Andrea. But, but I just wanted to lay that out. I mean, I think that you can't have, as you said, one doctor at the front of the bottleneck creating the bottleneck because it's not their fault either. There's only one doctor, right, or two or however many. Whereas you can have multiple nurses that are on triage assessing the, 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 the general public, the mass of animals that are sitting in the lobby and deciding where the vet goes next. Next and the next and the next and the next. David? Yes, sir. <laughs> so you haven't been in, in ER tech for 10 years, right? Yeah, it's been a while. So let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the 5,000 years it took to get you to be an ER tech are going to change in the last 10 years that you haven't been there? <laughs> exactly. Exactly what I, I was think thinking. I was hoping exactly that it was different, but changed, I think David. it's, yep, it's probably the same. And, so, and uh, yeah, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, write this down, anybody who's listening. We need to prepare more than repair. We are so knee-jerk reflex to something going wrong because we don't spend the time preparing the systems, the processes, the steps that are necessary to get it right. I don't think there's a profession that has that says, I'm sorry, more often than the veterinary profession for being late, for sending, for not getting pets ready on time, for not communicating in an effective and efficient fashion. We spend more time saying, I'm sorry, because we don't have the systems in place, because our communication skills are horrendous. 
And one of the other huge shortfalls in veterinary medicine is we do not take the time to hire correctly and train correctly so that employees can ultimately be successful. We set up our staff to fail because we don't give them the, the skills, the tools, and the training to make them successful. Mic drop. I just got to say right there, Dr. Weinstein, that is veterinary medicine in a nutshell. Everything that you just said in the last one minute, 100%. Thank you. Are we done? And you, Yeah, right? <laughs> Thanks for coming on. See you next time. Yeah. <laughs> so you cue in there on the staff. We, and I shouldn't say the staff. I hate using the word staff because it's it's not the appropriate word, veterinary medicine. I really feel teams, we have to focus teams. more on teams. <laughs> teams. That's right. It's a team, yeah. right? Yep. So you focused in and you made several comments about right the team and how they are not, we don't hire right, we don't train right, we don't give them the proper tools to do their job. We're expecting the veterinarian to do everything, every position in the hospital. Like David was saying on his soapbox, we're just completely inefficient that way. So one of the major crises our profession is facing right now is the limited amount of staffing and inability for us to be able to hire these good people. And, and I think that's a loaded statement because, you know, Disneyland is amazing. Their customer service training is amazing. And they laid off, you know, what is it, 32,000 people. Like, let's scoop up some of them. Right. Because... They are amazing with their client service skills, right? Right. So let's focus and talk and dissect a little bit about why this is. Why are we having a staff crisis? Why is it that we can't do this correctly? And, and not only just identify the why, but what are we going to do or how can we change this? Mm -hmm. Because the amount of cases that we have and how busy we all are, if we don't get some RVTs, licensed technicians, to stay in our profession, right? And if we can't crank out good quality veterinarians that are going to want to be veterinarians, and unfortunately, we all know that there's a lot of them taking their own lives. Like, we have to stop this. We want them to stay in the profession and, and, and feel fulfilled, Right. What do we need to do to turn this around? How can we put a bubblegum in the damn wall, but then more than that, repair that and fix it for the future? Great question. Lots of moving parts in the question. Yeah, and you'll be a billionaire if you could answer it all with like, right, just shake your magic eight ball and be like, everybody do this, and then <laughs> we'll all be successful. Yeah, the, the magic eight ball <laughs> says the answer is vague. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Jeez. Ask me again tomorrow. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> well, right. So I think what we have to do is, I, I use the term wanji when I talk to practices, and, and it's a term that I'm, I'm copywriting as much as I can, which I'm not sure I can, but it's to work on, not just in, to work on the profession, not just in the profession, which means we really need to identify success models of practices that have done it right which means hiring correctly, onboarding correctly, orienting correctly, training correctly, and retaining correctly. Um, and we need to learn how to model against those. Because, and, and I would also suggest we should stop modeling against the veterinary profession because exactly. that, is that is modeling right. against, uh, right. you know, David, you, you were talking about the treatment area in an emergency clinic being the disaster zone. How about if the front door is the entry to the disaster zone? Right. So right. We, yeah. we need to... Look at outside of the profession. Yes, we we need to learn how Starbucks does what it does with eighty three people in line for a, yep. uh, in a car picking up coffee in the morning, and they can still get you a latte relatively quickly. And yes. it tastes exactly. the same whether you're in right. Orange County, California, Orange County, Florida, or Orange County, New York. Exactly. Part of yeah. of the problem with the staffing side of things or the team building side of things is that we are frugal. <laughs> You're so polite. I would use a different F word. <laughs> yeah, well, you can define that any way you want. But we are frugal in our sharing of the profits of the practice with our team. Not to say that we should be giving a, a portion of the profits because most practices' profitabilities are really paltry to begin with. But I tried to hire a, a waitress at an Italian restaurant, a mom and pop joint in uh Oh, Brea, I believe. And um, I, I suggested that, you know, you would be wonderful in a veterinary hospital. How much do you make um, after tips? $32 an hour. 
Whew. So, and wow. if you work at Houston's, Ruth Chris, there are there are servers in, in Houston's and Ruth Chris that are making somewhere between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! So uh, until we can create a much more effective and efficient business model where our staff can generate income for the practice as well, remember most of the revenue that comes into a veterinary hospital, if you take boarding and grooming off the off the books, mm-hmm. is doctor generated. The vast majority of income in a dental office that comes through the books is hygienist generated. Mm-hmm. David, I don't know whether you ever were a line item at a veterinary hospital for the services that you provided. Andrea, same question. So until we can leverage our staff to be income generators right. as well, and then we can pay our staff better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are yep. there are client service people in 2021 making less than I was paying 20 years ago when I left practice. And honestly, technicians earn every penny that they make. Client service people need to be paid the same and be given a Kevlar vest because they are the ones taking the bullets (laughs) every day. Taking the bullets, that's right. right. So we need to find ways to make practices have enough money coming in at an affordable value for the clients that they can drop money down to the staff for the hard work that they do and the challenges that they face Mm -hmm. so we can make this position within a veterinary hospital that is a career and not just a job. Yeah. And and that's yeah. the problem that we have. Technicians life expectancy four to five years. Client services probably less than that. Animal caretakers is six months. I mean, if you if you're going to Nordstrom's and you walk through a revolving door, put the same revolving door at the front of a veterinary hospital because that's what it's like. Well actually put it at Absolutely. the back of a veterinary hospital yeah, right, because right. Right. Um, because that's what's happening. And it's happening because we don't hire correctly. We don't onboard correctly. We don't orient to correctly. We don't train correctly. And we don't give a life career path mm-hmm. to grow new members of our teams from womb to tomb. Yeah. Well said. I agree with all of that fully. So we all, you know, I think um, if, if you look on Facebook and any of the veterinary groups, whether it's managers or, or, or technicians, when we look at some of the literature and comments and, and, and things that are said, I think every single person, and probably they sang this at VMAX, you know, the, the, the statement is this can't continue, right? The problem is, as you just said, it's, it's kind of us getting in our own way about why it can't continue, but it can't, right? We cannot continue at this rate. Uh, it is it is not sustainable for one person in any of the roles you mentioned to do what has been asked of people the last year and and, and plus now. You know uh, the level of toxicity of the clients, the level of um, safety procedures, the level of encounters with you know uh, a con- an infectious disease, the level of uh, you know of, of, of physical running from you know the clinic to outside, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Where does our profession need to go? Because where it's going to go, it could go down the tubes or it could go up into the clouds, right? Where does the profession need to go, Dr. Weinstein? And through answering that, can you tell us what the heck do we need to do now to, to, to get to, let's say, a thriving, productive, efficient, happy, I don't want to say burnout-free, but you know, maybe much less burnout and compassion than there is now in let's say, five to 10 years. I'm not going to ask you to solve the profession tomorrow or in one year, but five to 10 years, it's probably, as you said, a speck on the time frame of, of how long it'll take to actually make the changes. But I hope some of our practices that are listening listen to this and, and in five or 10 years could, could be there. So what do we need to start doing now? Well, you know, if we look at the consumer side of things, I really do think that we as a profession have done a crummy job of letting pet owners, horse owners, cow owners, sheep owners, pig owners, fish owners, et cetera, understand and truly appreciate what it takes to become a veterinarian, a veterinary nurse, et cetera. I I don't think that that many consumers truly understand the, the similarity of becoming an MD and a DVM or a VMD or an MRCVS, whatever the case may be. So I I think it's very, very important that we as a profession start to be self-promoting, unabashedly self-promoting, 
so that pet owners can understand the importance of a physical examination, the importance of vaccinations, the importance of of uh, desexing procedures, and all of the different things that we do. Plus, that's just on the wellness side. Plus, the knowledge and service and expertise that we can provide on the sickness side. Uh, there are still so many pet owners that don't understand that you can take radiographs at your practice and yeah, you can run right. lab profiles and we do din- dental digital radiographs and that pets get cancer yes. and dogs get diabetes and cats right. get diabetes and everybody gets arthritis and 40% of our pets are obese. We need to be self-promoting in the same unabashed way that dentists went from the tooth yankers of the 20s and 30s, cavity fillers of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, to the teeth whitener smile maintainers of the 2020s. And we haven't done that. And as a result, we spend a great deal of time on podcasts like this, defending who we are, why we are, and what we do. And we still don't get the respect of consumers. And so we spend way too much time having to explain the why of what we do and not just the what of what we're doing. So you as a patient, Andrea or David, who goes to an ER, you're not going to ask the doctor why or the nurse why. You're just going to have them do it. We spend half the time explaining why we need to do things. So that's one issue. The issue number two is, is money. In my humble opinion, for what it's worth and whatever other cliches I can come up with, the value of pets to the top 10, 15, 20% of pet owners is wonderful. They will spend whatever is necessary to keep their pets alive. And again, that top 20% of the pet owners give us 80% of our profit. The next 30% is the population of pet owners that that negotiate at the front desk or in the exam room or through the window of the car or through Yelp. When's the last time you negotiated your visit to the ER, David or Andrea? When's the last time you negotiated your visit to the dentist? Why are we having to negotiate with clients about care? Now, some of it is because it's discretionary income. It's a choice of spending money on a trip or spending money on a pet. I understand that. But some of it, again, is the value proposition, and that goes back to the client experience, and it goes back to training, and it goes back to a focus on a client-centric practice versus a doctor-centric practice. If you want my solution, and, and I've been quoted on this before, and it just really shakes people up when I say this, if you want my solution in the next five to 10 years to happiness in the veterinary profession, socialized veterinary medicine, where pets can get care at no or low cost to pet owners, veterinarians are paid a fair and equitable salary and can provide the best care ultimately possible. And we don't have to have the money talk, that we can simply focus on being doctors and we don't have to defend our profession or the care or services that we provide. You want to radicalize veterinary medicine, figure out how to create uh, not Medicare for all, but veterinary care for all. Wow. That's that radical is right. That is a. A radical way of thinking about it. Like, that is now our podcast yeah. a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, breaking Jeez. all that down. Oh, my God. I can just say, if we were in person, I could just basically see the crowd jump up and erupt and <laughs> cheers. And Dr. <laughs> right. Weinstein just turns around, does a spin, and drops the mic like uh, like President Obama. And, you know, it's just, just crazy. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> well, you'll either cheers or jeers. I'm not sure. You yeah. Know, we, we, we're, not everybody is, is, is enamored 50, with the 50 concept. 50-50 split? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Right. It, it depends on whether, you know, which state you're in. Um, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, I, I just think we have to figure out how to make yeah. veterinary medicine. I, I think we need to get people to feel as passionate about what we do as we do. Not the top 20%, but right. the other 80%. Right. What do you think are, and so don't forget here that our, our audience that we're talking to today are primarily practice managers. They're not veterinarians and they're not necessarily practice owners, right? So we have a, a, a targeted audience of practice managers that we have a voice to today. And so with that in mind, what do you think that are two or three mistakes that us as practice managers make on a regular basis that we have influence over or that we can control? Because there's certainly things 
outside of the scope of practice management that practice owners have control over. So tell us managers that say we can, you know, this podcast is recorded on Friday, go in Monday and stop doing this. Go in Monday and start. I don't want to stop things. I want to start things. Go in on Monday and start being leaders. Take chances. Move the glacier. Do things. You're more likely to receive forgiveness than permission. Don't wait to be given permission. Make the changes that are necessary. So, number one, start being leaders on Monday. Number two, start building systems to be able to provide consistent, predictable, repetitive, effective, and efficient service at all levels client service, patient care, management level, etc. Number three, and I'm going to give you four. Number three, create formal, ongoing training programs that go from day one through whatever the last day that somebody may be at your practice so that they are constantly learning and becoming more valuable to the practice. And Monday morning, start listening more and talking less. Leaders ask questions. And listen for the answers and solve problems with the team so everybody's voice is being heard and start to move the Titanic away from the iceberg with leadership, systems, training, and communication. Fantastic. We got four things that we can go get started on uh, ASAP Monday morning. I feel like that's daunting, but it's okay. Chip away at that iceberg one step at a time. And, and let me put that and in, in quotes underneath all of that. Don't be afraid to fail. Right. Yeah. Just get back up and try it over again. Exactly. I mean, all of us have done it. Fall on your exactly. face and just get back up and redo it again the next time. And then share your mistake with your neighbor and tell them not to do that. Yep. <laughs> right. Exactly. If you could give our listeners one piece of advice, what would that be? Take care of number one. Take care of yourself. Because if you can't take care of yourself, it's really hard to take care of your team, number one. Part of that is also to lead by example. Walk the walk. Yeah. Talk the talk. Talk the talk. Clean the cage. Answer the phone. Listen. Share. But take care of yourself first. Take care of your team. And um, lead by example. Great advice. I love it. I wish, you know, we could all have that going into veterinary medicine, you know, for me 20 years ago. I'm still working on that now, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. You have had an amazing reach of practices all over the country, I'm sure all over the world. Not only veterinary practice owners and practice managers and teams, but also clients and even people outside of the profession, whether they be vendors or whatever the case may be. I am sure the reach that you have is, is unfathomable to me. And we've all had these encounters with, like I said, practice owners, uh, clients, staff, whoever they may be, where you're in the midst of a situation like, holy cow, no way this just happened. Where like eyes pop out of your head like a pug and, you know, palm hits the forehead, chin hits the ground, like no way I cannot make this shit up. This just happened Shut the front door. I would love, love, love to hear your story, Dr. Weinstein. It really has to do with how I ended up writing The E-Myth Veterinarian. I think it was 2015. I was in Seattle at the Pac-12 Swimming Championships, and uh, my daughter swam for USC. We were up there, and I got a voicemail from somebody that said, Hi, this is Travis or Trevor, whatever it was, from Michael Gerber Company. Um, Michael would like to talk to you about co-authoring the E-Myth Veterinarian with him. Please give me a call back at. And, you know, <laughs> I got that voicemail and it's like, yeah, right. I'm, I'm thinking it wasn't sure, Michael Gerber's. Sure, it was a fake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't Michael Gerber's voice because I know what he sounded like because I stalked him. Um, but so I, I called the guy back. And I said, you know, A, you got my attention because you mentioned Michael Gerber and Emith, but B, you also got my radar up because 
you know, you don't get cold calls like this on a regular basis. So let's prove, show me, I'm not from Missouri, but show me that this is legit. I'm not going to talk any further with you unless you set up a phone call with you and Michael Gerber and myself so I can hear his voice and make sure this is legit. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. So four days later, I set up a phone call and, you know, Michael says hello. And it's like, holy cow. Uh, no right. way Whoa. this is real. <laughs> this, is, this is legit. And, uh, you know, we, we started talking and I gave him my background and the history of, I'll give you another story that goes with that, that one of the reasons that I, I started following uh, in Michael's writings in just a second. But so we started talking and, and I, you know, I said, well, there's probably nobody who could do a better job than I can. I didn't say that. Yes, I did. <laughs> 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 why, you know, why I did that? Cause I don't want anybody else to, to have this opportunity. So, um, so I, it, and one thing led to another and probably eight months later, the book was written and it was like amazing. But the story that piqued me into becoming a Michael Gerber stalker was the fact that in, in many years ago, a year after I owned, opened my practice, I was at the Western Veterinary Conference in Las Vegas and it was at the Las Vegas Hilton. And it was like a six mile walk from the convention center through the casino to the hotel. And this was before cell phones were the norm. And I got paged in the casino to call the office. And I had to call the office because one of my clients, Linda, wouldn't let the doctor who was there see her cat, Bo, because it wasn't me. Now, mind you, I'd only been open a year. So I, I, at that point in time, I recognized that the practice, even after a year, was too dependent upon me that I couldn't even go away oh, to go yeah, to a continuing education right, program. Right. And I put my focus on... I need to make a practice that is dependent upon my team and that that team can communicate sufficiently, effectively, professionally so that anybody who walks through the door is there for the experience at the practice and not the experience with Peter Weinstein. So sure. yeah, the, right. the Michael Gerber story was my, um, seriously, you can't make this stuff up, palm to forehead, but damn, that was cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great story. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So Dr. Weinstein, tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Not getting into veterinary school the first time I applied, and it was completely a result of enjoying my undergraduate experience way too much and being a member of a fraternity and going to a highly competitive school where instead of being top of the heap, I was the middle of the pack. And that was not that I rue the day that I didn't get in the first time, because I learned a lot as a result. But my most personal epic failure is not getting into vet school the first application. And tell me about your proudest moment. I think my proudest moments are both of my children who are now um, very much self-sustaining, one of whom lives in Austin, Texas, as, and is in sales for NetSuites and has not asked for money since she graduated from USC. And the other, her second year in the veterinary school at Oregon State University. So I think my proudest moments are Brooke and Brianna Weinstein, and there's a shout out to you. Veterinary medicine, what do you just love about our profession? I love the challenge. <laughs> you know, it sounds, sounds unique, but I always thought veterinary medicine was like a Sherlock Holmes novel. The, the pet can't tell you what's going on. The client thinks that they know what's going on and you need to take out your magnifying glass and using the senses that you have, find the answer and solve the story. I should have become a doctor, but I loved pets and I love the challenge. Self-care. How do you practice it? How do you decompress? As soon as I get off this call, my bicycle is waiting for me. I'm going to go for a 45 minute to an hour bike ride. I go to the gym. When I can't go for a bike ride, I go to the gym, I read every day. There's the power hour. If everybody took 
20 minutes to exercise, to read, and to meditate, they would be better off. But find 20 minutes to exercise, 20 minutes to read, 20 minutes to meditate, and that's how I self-care. How do you balance work and life, and do you experience any work guilt in that balance? I do my best to balance work and life. I don't do a great job of it. I, I try to dedicate time specifically to my wife um, until she goes to sleep, and then I go back to work. When I'm home, I try to be focused on the house. When I'm at work, I try to be focused at work. But yeah, I work too hard. I try to do too many things. I try to be everything to everybody. And um, my guilt is sometimes not always walking the walk and talking the talk. What keeps you up at night? Things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your current practice? I think what keeps me up is my desire to get up and see what the next day is going to look like. You know, what keeps me up at night is I get into bed and my mind starts going 100 miles an hour because it's the only time I'm starting to shut down. What I have found by reading a novel before bedtime and falling asleep reading, I frequently sleep better. When I was reading business books before bedtime, I found myself coming up with all sorts of new ideas for the profession, for the association, or whatever the case may be. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I think I get up in the morning still solving problems that I went to bed thinking about the night before. And I have this endorphin need, like many millennials, David Liss, have, of needing to see what my texts were, what my emails were, what my Facebook posts were, what my Instagram posts were. So I need to get that high of people recognizing that I'm still alive. So some of that gets me up. But I think just getting up, going down and seeing the puppies in the morning, it gets me up and going. Awesome. Dr. Weinstein, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Weinstein. It has been lovely to have you on the podcast. Yes, it's been great. David, Andrea, thank you so much for doing what you're doing and and for continuing to try to get the word out and make a difference. Um, You know, we can all take the profession forward, kicking and screaming. We might have to cut the anchor. We might have to get them away from the iceberg. But I think with podcasts like this and just constantly trying to disrupt the past, take the rearview mirror out of your car and look through the windshield and let's start moving forward and stop looking back. Amen. Amen. I also want to give a shout out, Dr. Weinstein, to your uh, podcast. Will you tell us um, the name of it, where we can find it, and a little bit about what it's about? Absolutely. Thank thank you, Andrea. Um, It's called Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations. And it is myself and Dr. Phil Nelson, who is the dean at Western University. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon and wherever podcasts are found. (laughs) And it came from a conversation that Dr. Nelson and I had beginning of June 2020, shortly after the George Floyd murder, where I reached out to him as the white privileged uh, doctor calling the black veterinary colleague and saying, Phil, I just don't understand this stuff. Help me out here. I I mean, what are we, what can I do to help? What can we do together to help? And, you know, we've just had over years now of ongoing conversations about issues that are not veterinary medicine. These are life issues. These are issues that we feel can be solved by simply having two people start to have a conversation. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Weinstein. uh, Hope we connect soon. David, thank you. Andrea, thank you. I I look forward to um, the real David and the real Andrea. Yes, live in person. And and the real hug. (laughs) Uh, You know, this has been fun. But uh, next time, let's do it over a bottle of water somewhere. Sounds fantastic. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Take care, y'all. Thank you. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a -A P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast and be sure to rate us. 
check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever is expressly disclaimed. 